Guess which American is more responsible than any other for the new Taliban government? Hint, it's not Joe Biden. Also, um, the age of American privilege is ending. I'll tell you what that means. Why Twitter censored Trump, but not the Taliban, even though the latter carried out a real insurrection. And finally, Democratic activist Gloria Romero joins me to talk about her endorsement of Larry Elder and why she supports school choice. This is the Dinesh D'Souza podcast. America needs this voice. The times are crazy in a time of confusion, division and lies. We need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. The Taliban has named its new government, and there are some familiar names on the list. When I say familiar, I don't mean familiar to the ordinary person, but certainly familiar to the American who is most responsible for getting these um, Islamic radicals into key positions of what is now the most powerful terrorist regime in the world. Now, um, the United States is well aware that there is a guy named Siraj Haqqani. This is a guy who ran something called the Haqqani Network. Very bad guy. He's been on the FBI most wanted list for a long time. Uh, he's one of the top terrorists in the world. Well, uh, he is now the um, interior minister of the Taliban. And then there are several other key figures that um, have a familiar ring to them. These are very bad guys with long histories. They have ties not just to the old Taliban, but they also have ties to al-Qaeda. And, um, and these ties are well-documented and uh, well-known. Well, how did they get these four guys into the Taliban government? Answer, uh, they were released out of Gitmo, uh, Guantanamo, by Barack Obama in 2014. You might remember the infamous uh, Bergdahl trade. And this was a trade, again, that was done very knowingly by Obama. Uh, first of all, there was uh, the whole idea that America will never leave Americans behind. We see from the Biden administration how uh, how little they believe it, how little they act on it. There are many Americans now in Afghanistan. We have left them behind. So it's not as if these Democrats, Obama, Biden, have great compunctions about leaving Americans behind. Obama wanted Bergdahl back, in part because of Bergdahl's anti-Americanism. This guy hated America. In fact, he had uh, um, tried to join the Taliban. He had tried to sort of defect from the military. And Obama was like, that's my kind of American, uh, an anti-American like me. Uh, and so Obama got this guy, Bo Bergdahl, back. By the way, I was kind of looking to see where Bergdahl is now. And it's very interesting. Guess what? Uh, he fled the United States. He lives now in Great Britain and he has converted to Islam and he's part of some kind of Islamic faction in Britain. That's Bo Bergdahl now. Now, the guys that Obama released, there were five of them. Uh, let's go through where they are now. Uh, they were at that time seasoned Taliban commanders, as I say, with deep ties to terrorism, to insurgency, to al-Qaeda. Uh, one of them, uh, Mohammad Fazl, is now the deputy defense minister 
in the Taliban's new government. Abdul Haq Wasik, acting director of intelligence. So their top intelligence guy. Nurullah Nuri is the minister of borders and tribal affairs. Kairullah Karkawa, minister of information and culture. And the fifth guy, the fifth guy who was a former Guantanamo inmate, this is um, uh, Muhammad Nabi Omari. He's going to be the governor of the province of Coast. So all five guys, and by the way, remember Obama's assurances, these men are going to go to Qatar, they're going to, uh, uh, we're going to keep a very close eye on them. They're not going to have anything more to do with the battlefield. Wrong. Uh, Obama knew fully well that they would return to the battlefield. That's why he released them. Now, this is the key. What I'm getting at here is that, you know, Obama's behavior at the time was puzzling to many people. Some people even said, he's a secret Muslim. He's got to be a secret Muslim. Why else would he want the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power in the Middle East? And and my argument at the time was, no, it's not that Obama is a secret Muslim. In fact, I don't believe Obama is any kind of a religious believer at all. What Obama is, is he has embraced an ideology according to which America is the force, the greatest force for evil in the world. Think about it. That's why Obama went on his apology tour. Now, I covered these themes in my movie 2016, Obama's America, and here's a short clip. It actually begins with uh, some comments by Daniel Pipes, um, a professor who is an expert on Middle Eastern affairs, uh, and he's laying out, uh, giving at least a hint of Obama's ideology, which helps to explain uh, what has been happening here in Afghanistan now. Listen. It comes out of a tradition that's highly critical of the United States. It sees the United States internally badly set up and externally a force for malign influence. And therefore, he presumably sees his role as tempering both of those, making it better internally and reducing the bad influence of the United States abroad. More recently, tension has been fed by colonialism that denied rights and opportunities to many Muslims. In a Cold War, in which Muslim-majority countries were too often treated as proxies without regard to their own aspirations. Isn't it so interesting that when you listen to Obama, really listen to what Obama says, you realize that he's not coming out of any kind of a civil rights tradition. He's coming out of this anti-colonial, anti-American tradition, the ghost of his father. And and what a crazy dude that guy was. I mean, uh, one-legged, wife-beating, alcoholic, an absolute nutcase. Uh, but somehow, even though he abandoned Obama, Obama revered him. And so the ghost of Barack Obama's father is still living in Obama, and the ghost of Obama, or maybe not even the ghost, the real fingerprints of Obama are all over the Biden administration. So not only is Obama acting through Biden to produce disasters uh, in Afghanistan, but in a sense, you can argue he's acting directly to populate the new Taliban government. You all know what a big enthusiast I am of my pillow, and now Mike Lindell has done it again by introducing his new My Slippers. Mike has taken over two years to develop these slippers. They're designed to weigh indoor or outdoor all day long. They're made with My Pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue. They're made with quality leather suede. 
And for a limited time, Mike is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. You got to get them. The My Slippers are so comfortable, you will want to get some for the whole family. We actually did. Here's Danielle with her moccasins. And of course, Debbie and I just love ours. I got the moccasins. She got the slip-ons. Go to MyPillow.com and use promo code Dinesh. By the way, you got deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, the robes, the MyPillow towel sets, and so on. Call 800-876-0227. That's 800-876-0227. Or go to MyPillow.com to get the discount. You got to use promo code D-I-N-E-S-H Dinesh. The United States has been living really since World War II in what can be called the age of American privilege. Now, in America, we hear a lot of nonsense about white privilege, male privilege, but the real privilege is the privilege of being an American. And the question I want to ask is, is that privilege now coming to an end? I, I fear that it is. I'm not saying America's finished, but what I am saying is this idea that America is something special in the world, this idea that the American passport is better than everybody else's passport, uh, this idea that America sets the standard, that's, that's what the Biden administration is forfeiting. And I'm not clear, I'm not sure we can ever get that back. Now, what do we mean by American privilege? I remember many years ago, I was in the late 1990s, uh, this was, I was on a cruise in the Middle East, uh, a cruise that went to countries like Jordan, Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia. And when we got to Saudi Arabia, uh, the, um, the people who disembarked the ship, and these were probably half Americans, but there were people from other countries, we all had to, I mean, the women had to wear essentially abayas, full-length black outfits with their faces largely covered. And um, and the Europeans were like, yeah, you know, when in Rome, do like the Romans. And so there was sort of a um, no problem with doing it. But the Americans, I noticed, balked at it. And I remember one woman saying kind of indignantly, I'm not going to do that. I'm an American. Uh, and, and while I was sort of chuckling at that sentiment, I also understood that this is what This is American privilege. American privilege means that we as Americans are not held to the same standard as anyone else. Uh, If we become hostages abroad, our country will come get us in a way that other countries may be like so. Um, And But as you can see with Biden now, that is being called into question. Now, here's another example um, just from now. I see a very interesting exchange on Twitter between the U.S. Navy um, and a Chinese a communist newspaper called Global Times. So the U.S. Navy is talking about U.S. Uh, Navy exercises in the South China Sea. And the Navy goes, the freedom of all nations to navigate in international waters is important and especially vital in the South China Sea when nearly a third of global maritime trade transits every year. So here's the U.S. Navy doing its usual pompous proclamation. We have every right to patrol the South China Sea. Now here's what the China Times replies. Hopefully, when Chinese warships can pass through the Caribbean Sea or show up near Hawaii and Guam one day, the U.S. will uphold the same standard of freedom of navigation. That day will come soon. So the Chinese are basically saying it's it's all very well to make these pompous proclamations. We have every right to be in your waters. Well, does China ever have every right to be in our waters? So suddenly you notice that the rest of the world isn't going along with these blithe assertions of American superiority as if there's one set of rules that applies to America, another set of rules that applies to everybody else. That day seems to be coming to an end. And here's an interesting article by the historian Andrew Bakovich in the Washington Post 
the age of American privilege is over. Now, uh, Bakovich points out that going back to 1948, George Kennan, the U.S. State Department diplomat, very prominent figure and well-known writer as well, uh, made the observation that uh, the United States has 6% of the world's population, but 50% of the world's wealth. Now, that's dominance. Uh, and with that comes privilege, the privilege of being, you can say, lord of the manor. And so not only did Americans have a way of life that's the envy of the world, but America could project its influence around the world, not just through military power, but also through example. People wanted to become more like Americans and follow American culture, watch American movies, develop a kind of American sensibility. Now, by 2000, Bakovich points out, the United States accounts for 33% of the world's wealth, so down from 50 uh, and that number has plummeted uh, even further. Uh, and now with this defeat in Afghanistan, Bakovich says, and I, I largely agree with him, quote, the age of American privilege is gone for good. He goes, essentially, George Kennan was, at the end of the day, a realist. George, George Kennan was, this is a realistic assessment of where we are in the world, and we can build uh, our own, not only our self-understanding, but our actions in the world based on it. But this is not 1948. This is 2021. And uh, Andrew Bakovich says a realistic assessment is that America no longer carries that kind of clout. And so it's time for a kind of more modest American role in the world. We don't detach from the world. This is not isolationism. But America recognizes that we have serious problems at home. Uh, serious problems that, be that begin with a deep political divide, a breakdown of trust in basic institutions, a level of corruption once considered in inconceivable in America, a denial of basic uh, liberties in many cases, a, a lack of faith even in equal justice, all these fundamental principles that once seemed to define the American way of life no longer do, no longer do. And uh, what this means is that we're not that much better than other people. When we look at Cuban political prisoners, we got to ask, are we doing something like that over here? We look at censorship abroad, Xi Jinping, we've got to ask, well, wait a minute, how different really is Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg from Xi Jinping? They're operating in a different context, but isn't it the same tyrannical mindset? The What this means is that we can no longer say with confidence, at least now, uh, we are the land of the free and the home of the brave, not only will other people chuckle, fight back, push back, not believe it, but in, at certain times and in certain moments, we ourselves don't believe it either. I find myself being amused and even fascinated by this character, Anthony Blinken. I, I've never really met Blinken, uh, but every time I see him, the words that jump to mind are beta male. I mean, this guy is just your major, um, your major beta. And even his statements are so preposterous that they make you wonder how an intelligent person can let such words come out of their mouth. Uh, because of what it reveals about how they think. Now, here is Anthony Blinken commenting on the new Taliban government, <laughs> noting that, number one, it's all male, <laughs> and noting that, number two, it's got one guy on the FBI most wanted list. It's got a bunch of guys with long histories with al-Qaeda, the worst terrorist groups. So here's how Anthony Blinken puts that. 
This is sort of, <laughs> this takes euphemism to a new level. Quote, it certainly does not meet the test of inclusivity. <laughs> As of the Taliban are, you know what, we, we, we got to make sure we meet the test of inclusivity. <laughs> They're not even thinking like this. So here's this fool in Washington. It doesn't meet the test of inclusivity. And quote, it includes people who have very challenging track records. <laughs> So it doesn't include major terrorists, FBI most wanted list. Yeah, we can look forward to more terrorist incidents. When's the next 9-11? None of that. Their, their, their track records are challenging. Uh, but he's up to the challenge, I take it. Now, as I was thinking about all this, you know, I'm filled with a mixture of contempt and sadness and outrage. Um, the sadness comes from the fact that there actually are young girls in Afghanistan who um, grew up after the Taliban. I mean, think about it. The Taliban was pushed out in 2001. You've got young girls who are 18 years old who have never known Taliban rule. These are girls who went to school. They got a normal education or at least a normal education under Afghan conditions. But now suddenly they're going to have to live under not just an Islamic regime, but an Islamic regime that makes, you know, Iran uh, look like it's a liberal country. These are people far more ferocious in their imposition of Sharia law. And then I think to myself, you know, I frequently see on social media the Taliban itself issuing statements. And they're issuing statements on Twitter. They're issuing statements through the various platforms. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. <laughs> Why are these guys allowed to do this? First of all, I, I'm, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be free speech. I'm applying the Twitter standard. So the Twitter standard has been, was very clear after January 6th is you can't promote an insurrection. You can't uh, question legitimate democratic procedures. You cannot use force to get your way. And, you know, the, the, the January 6th, the walkthrough of the Capitol, taking selfies, laughing, playing jokes with Pelosi's desk, this was considered an insurrection. Well, the Taliban have just carried out a real insurrection, an armed insurrection, in contrast with January 6th, an extremely violent insurrection. They've established a dictatorship by force. This is not democracy. It's not even, there's no pretense of democracy. So I guess the Twitter standard is, is that for people who are brown and Muslim, it's perfectly okay to uh, have these kind of bloodthirsty displays of violence. It's all right, but we're not going to allow that kind of thing here in the United States. Is that what Twitter is saying? So I'm trying to make sense of the deep double standard by which the Taliban, even though it's right back to its old practices, isn't really getting harsh treatment, not just on Twitter. Uh, you don't even see screams of outrage in the New York Times. You don't see Rachel Maddow sweating on MSNBC. You know, here you have on social media pictures of the Taliban and they've got sticks and they're whipping girls who are coming out to demonstrate against them. Nothing. You know, pretty soon there'll be buildings falling on top of gays and nothing. So my question is, why not? Why is it the case that that stuff is going on over there and the left doesn't care about it because it's not happening over here? I don't think that's the full explanation. It seems to me that their full explanation is this. It comes back to what I was saying a little bit about Obama earlier. The Taliban's real credential and its real attraction to the left is the Taliban is vehemently anti-American. The Taliban was vehemently anti-Trump. The Taliban is vehemently anti-Christian. So you see here that the left and the Taliban have a certain common purpose. I was thinking the other day about the close resemblance between Taliban guys and Antifa guys. If you look at them, they even look the same. They dress the same and they do the same kind of things. They go out into the street and they bully and threaten and beat people. 
And so what you have here, I mean, think about it. You, you hear the Taliban chanting debt to America. You could easily go to Portland and see Antifa chanting debt to America. You see the radical Muslims burning an American flag. You can easily go to an American campus and see radical leftists burning an American flag. So there's a community of interests. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, a kind of weird alliance between these radical Islamic regimes, even terrorists around the world and the democratic left in the United States. The Joe Rogan experience. Garrett Vandenbush said this is going to become a pandemic of variants, and he talked about immune escape. And that has been very controversial. But Did you explain that to people? Sure. What he argued, and let's just say... Could you explain who he is, too? Sure. He is an uh, immunobiologist. He is training his veterinary. Um, he has training in the relevant area uh, of vaccination technology. He was a guest on Dark Horse. People can look up my discussion with him. Uh, it is um, Many people regard it as a very good way uh, to understand what he's saying because often he speaks uh, about matters that are quite technical. And anyway, I did my best in that podcast to, to make it non-technical so that people could understand it. In any case, what he argued was that the fact of these vaccines being very narrowly targeted, right? These vaccines contain a single subunit of a single protein, and they are being deployed in a way that is unusual. They're being deployed into an active pandemic, right? When we immunize against something like measles, the expectation is you will develop your full immunity with almost no chance of encountering measles, right? In this case, what we have are vaccines that are leaky, in which they do not provide full sterilizing immunity. They are narrow, and um, we are effectively creating an intense evolutionary pressure to cause the spike protein, of which this one subunit is what is contained, what the information for it is contained in the vaccines. We are putting intense evolutionary pressure on it to change so that the antibodies and other immune cell recognition mechanisms that are trained by the vaccines are incapable of finding the pathogen when it, it gets in. This is what causes a breakthrough case is that the immunity that's been created is evaded by the pathogen. And if the pathogen changes, um, that is more likely. And so what he said was, if you vaccinate into an active pandemic with vaccines like this, what you will get is a evolutionary pressure for a radiation of variants, an evolutionary radiation of uh, different molecular signatures, changes in the spike protein that will then cause the vaccines to be less and less effective at producing immunity, which is exactly what we see. So he predicted this? Absolutely. He did predict it. Accurately. Accurate, yes. Accurately predicted it. Now, is every component of his model correct? That's a much harder question to answer. But what I would say is any time somebody succeeds in predicting better than the so-called experts, you want to know how they did it. And he was making absolute evolutionary sense, right? His concerns were very well honed, and he was making sense, and then the world that he predicted emerged. And it is now incumbent on us to say, okay, have we learned anything from this, right? It, do the vaccines need to be modified such that they don't produce this effect? There are conceivable ways you could do that. 
right? But if we don't do it, if we just say, well, more of the same, have a booster of the same thing, it's not going to solve the problem. So in effect, what I would say is these vaccines are uh, a spectacular achievement, but they are a prototype, right? They have achieved something that had never been done before. Technologically, that's remarkable, but they were not ready for prime time, and they have failed to produce lasting immunity. They have produced very narrow immunity. It does not compare to the natural immunity that people get from having had and beaten the disease. And what's more, we have learned an awful lot about how the disease can be managed, so it's much less lethal, right? That combination suggests that we need a rethinking of our approach, and, you know, it is impossible to prove, but based on what people who have successfully treated the disease and have successfully predicted events like the proliferation of variants are telling us, it does seem that we now have the tools at our disposal to manage this crisis and do away with it, which I don't know why we don't do that, but it is at least worth noting that were we to successfully manage it, it would interrupt a huge flow of revenue into this brand new pharma market. Is that the reason that we don't do it? I don't know. But we, the public, need to recognize our interests are not being served by the public health apparatus. It is making errors that it doesn't need to make and that that um, has implications for all of our individual health and our collective well-being that uh, require a rethink. Watch the entire episode for free only on Spotify. <laughs> the Joe Rogan experience. It's spooky to, to, to think that these mainstream news publications have been completely captured, completely, to the point where they're all spitting out the exact same narrative. And you're watching it in real time. You're like, wow, this is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to say something about Horace Dewormer. I want to talk about her book, but I want to say something about well, Horace we, Dewormer first. I definitely want to talk about your book. <laughs> yeah, but, but um, I mean, never before have I wanted to talk about Horace Dewormer, <laughs> but I feel like it now. Um, so ivermectin, you know, the, the drug that shall not be named, sure, it works against worms in horses and other organisms, but it's literally understood. It's, you know, it's on the who's list of essential medicines and has been for years. Uh, the discoverer and developer won the Nobel Prize for it in 2014-15, I can't remember. And it's literally understood to have antibacterial and antiviral qualities and works against lots of other RNA viruses like Zika and dengue and yellow fever. And no one is talking about that. So is it not as effective as some people think it is against COVID? Maybe, sure. But is it dangerous? No, it's been given a hundred of you know hundreds of millions of doses, um, and is it effective? It seems so, but given that it's safe, why aren't we using it? And what you were explaining to me the the actual dosage that you would have to take to get sick off of this in relation to all these fake stories, the ones that Rachel Maddow tweeted saying that gunshot victims have to wait in line at the hospital, which is a, a full-on lie that the Rolling Stone magazine printed, full-on lie that gunshot wound victims are waiting because the hospitals are overrun by people who have overdosed on this horse dewormer. But what is, what is the actual 
What, what did the actual study show? Well, I'm uh, because I'm neither a doctor nor a toxicologist. I'm uh, concerned about citing the result, but I did pursue this with a friend of ours who is a PhD toxicologist, and said, "What are the chances that these stories of hospital beds filling up with people uh, taking too much horse paste are true?" And he found it uh, very unlikely on the basis that even a massive overdose does not seem to be destructive, even over the course of many days, that he was referring to a primate study in which uh, very high doses were given to monkeys. And so in any case, we don't know what the truth of these things. We obviously don't know anything about whether the horse paste is, you know, well produced. It's possible there's something else in it that's not supposed to be there. But the idea that the drug itself is causing a wave of overdoses that is putting people in the hospital is inconsistent with the toxicological data that we've got. I think it's probably causing a wave of calls to poison control centers with people asking questions. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Yeah. Um, but uh, people asking questions is not the same thing as people being poisoned. And at the same time, one of the things that we were talking about earlier is that there is a drug being developed that mirrors the effects of ivermectin. Yeah, a uh, protease inhibitor. And, you know, who knows? It may work. But let's say it does work and... Uh, maybe it runs into less resistance because it will be under patent and therefore profitable. One thing that it, it definitely won't be is something that we have enough experience with to know what its harms are. The thing about ivermectin is because it's been in use for 40 years and uh, has been administered something like 4 billion times, um, we know a lot about its consequences. And yeah. it's, they're not zero, but it, it, does, it, it is one of the safest drugs available to us. There's this thing that's happening, too, though, and this is where it gets fascinating because there's the, the psychology of these drugs and of compliance and of which team you're on. Are, are you on team, you know, mainstream news, people that follow the news in the sense, or sort of a peripheral sense that believe everything Fauci says and don't understand how bizarre these things get when massive amounts of profits are involved? And these people automatically want to ridicule anything that might be outside of the realm of what's being promoted in the mainstream media, which is get vaccinated, which is really all you're hearing. Yeah, well, we need right. to be we all need to be on team skeptic. Hmm. Right. Because, I mean, if you just simply track the stories that we have been assured are true, that have then shown themselves to be false. Right. Like the uh, the overdoses that were keeping gunshot victims out of the hospital. Um, these stories are revealing that something is just not right about our, our way of even doing journalism anymore. And the fact I don't know what to make of it, but the fact that Anthony Fauci was yesterday revealed to have clearly lied to Congress when he told them we didn't fun, uh, fund gain of function research in Wuhan. I mean, that was obvious when he said these things, but everyone assumed he had defined the terms in some way that would justify that claim. No, it was just a lie. So here we have somebody who, you know, lied to us about masks, has lied to us multiple times, and was also apparently a key to conducting funds in uh, in violation of our own ban on gain-of-function research, conducting funds 
to the Wuhan Institute, which may well have caused the pandemic. How is the person who is in the position to have circumvented a congressional ban on this kind of research and possibly therefore be have played a prominent role in producing the pandemic, how is he also in charge of keeping us safe? And why are we tolerating him lying to us? So you said we all need to be on team skeptic. I think I mean Joe's exactly right. We're all being told you're on team blue effectively, you're on team mainstream, or you're someone else. You're persona non grata and you're you're gonna become a second class citizen. I was gonna say we all need to be on team science. And you know, this is you know, this is in part why why we're here with you, right? That you know, we are approaching things scientifically and the people who keep on adopting the mantle of science are like, no, I'm you know, follow this hashtag follow the science, right? All too often, hashtag follow the science. When you dig, it's like, oh, well, we went into a back room somewhere and concluded some things, and we're going to tell you the conclusion, but just listen to us because we're scientists. You can tell because the lab coats. Like, no, actually, that's not how science works. Science, <laughs> science works by, um, by investigating patterns carefully and really, really, really trying to falsify your cherished results. And we see very little falsification going on right now in mainstream media land. One of the grossest things from Fauci is when he said an attack on Anthony Fauci is an attack on science itself. That's right. Like, that is yep. bad guy in a movie shit. You're right. right? It's car yeah. cartoon Third person villain. Bad guy in a movie shit. Like, you're, you're literally referring to yourself in the third person. This is madness. Yeah. It, it, it is. It is madness. And then somehow, I mean, it seems to me that were there some, you know, normal process running that just simply the number of lies that he has told, the number of places that he has been in error, his prominent role in possibly causing the pandemic, a normal era would have him fired long ago and replaced with somebody that we had reason to believe might be capable of doing the job well, might have our interests at heart. Something is, is very far off that this thing just keeps running no matter what evidence of, uh, of dishonesty emerges. Yeah, it's very strange. It's very strange. It's like we lost our minds during the Trump administration mm -hmm. and objectivity got completely thrown out the window. Tribalism got ramped up to 11. And if you're on the right team, they'll protect you. And he's on the right team. And they, they got him in this slot as the expert that we go to no matter what. And he's the guy Jim Acosta was talking to about horse dewormer. Yeah, that's right. A absolutely. Um, you know, when I heard that you had taken Horace Dewormer, I thought, <laughs> Joe is so famous, I bet the Poison Control Center called him. L-O-L. What <laughs> <laughs> um, no one's, again, what no one's, all these stories are focusing on is this Horace Dewormer shit. No one is focusing on the fact that I got better in five days. Yeah. Like, right. Literally, six days later, I was working out. It would seem to be a demonstration, you know, it's an anecdote, yeah. but it, uh, and, you know, it's not the only anecdote, right? Trump, who is not a picture of health, also got better yeah. very rapidly, and his doctors didn't give a damn about what uh, we were supposed to believe works and doesn't. They gave him the kitchen sink treatment, as you got, right? This yeah. is the, and, you know, uh, Pierre Corey also got COVID, also recovered very quickly. Why? Because he was capable of getting whatever he needed, whatever the right thing was. And really, the public needs to realize, vaccinated or not, you need doctors who will prescribe those things that we think have the best shot of managing this disease. And it certainly looks like um, the, this disease, which is very dangerous if allowed to run its own course, can be managed with drugs that we happen to have already. Um, that's a hopeful thing. And, you know, 
please, people should not take up a position that is going to mean that when they or their loved ones need those things, they won't be available because their doctor's too, too afraid to prescribe them. Watch the entire episode for free only on Spotify.